You're listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning. Good morning. Check. Check. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. So good to see you this morning. If we haven't met before, my name's Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, one more thing that's worth mentioning that we didn't talk about earlier on in the service is that our youth team just got back from the Philippines. And I heard it was just a fantastic trip. Can we celebrate that? We'll, uh, we'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. It's so exciting to see the next generation engaging in mission alongside our church. So cool. Well, today's teaching text is from Matthew 26. If you have a Bible, would you turn with us to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36? And while you turn there, let me introduce you to my friend, Melanie. And many of you would know Melanie as she serves in a myriad of different ways uh, in and through our church. She's, what, a community group leader, leads a great community group that's doing a lot of beautiful things in the community and serving. Oh, I hear some of you here. Amazing. Um, Melanie also leads our capital campaign. She led two capital campaigns and helped us to really finance the new building. So just so involved in so many different ways. I so appreciate you and Rob and everything you do around here. And so Melanie's going to read our teaching text today from Matthew 26. If, if you could stand with us. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be on the screen so you can follow along there as we read Matthew 26 starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Melanie. You can take a seat. Well, as we get started this morning, I, uh, I want to do something I actually don't do very often, maybe I've never done before. I want to show you a picture of my kids. Is that okay? <laughs> Can you put that picture on the screen of them eating the ice cream cone? Okay. <laughs> so I'm a super proud dad. I don't think I'm biased. I think I actually have the cutest kids on the planet. <laughs> and, uh, and by God's grace, they have their mom's looks, but they got my cheeks, which is just the best. It's so much fun. <laughs> Uh, but so much fun as they grow older together. And while many of you know my daughters, and you've probably seen them kicking around, usually on a Sunday morning, I'm trying to wrangle at least one of them around the foyer. What you might not know is that before Kinsley and Harper were born, 
that uh, my wife, Jorley, and I actually had a little boy named Jaren. And Jaren wasn't our, our biological child. He was the son of a, a loose family friend who, uh, who'd been in a really difficult situation, had several kids who were in different places. And so she had asked Jorley and I if we'd consider raising Jaren, being his parents. And in a lot of ways, it was like perfect timing because we'd been praying uh, and, and really feeling like God was telling us in prayer that, that we should adopt and, and putting foster care in our hearts and in our mind. And, uh, and so this in so many ways was like an answer to prayer. And, and he was such a good kid. I still remember that July day when Jaren, this spunky little four-year-old kid, showed up and uh, we instantly became parents. I think I was 23 or 24 at the time, and, uh, and it was a steep learning curve for sure, but we, we loved being his mommy and daddy. We loved Jaren like he was our own kid, because in so many, like he was our kid. As far as we knew, we were going to raise him for, for his whole life, and, and you know, I imagined that I'd be teaching him how to shave one day, <laughs> that I'd be giving him a pep talk before his wedding, that we'd be having the, the, the hard, rebellious teenage years. And there were so many special moments and memories with him. I think about the, his first day of kindergarten. Or uh, I think about even you know, his first ever birthday party, which we got to throw for him. We got to take him to Disneyland and all sorts of park days. But after two years with Jaron, much sooner than we ever thought possible, circumstances changed and his relatives decided that they wanted him back, that they wanted him to return to Ontario where he came from. And while everything inside of us wanted Jaron to stay, and we prayed, and we prayed, and, and we asked God that he would let him stay with us, we wanted to continue to provide a safe and stable home for him. But at the end of the day, there was nothing we could do. We felt so powerless. And so after months of advocating for him and doing everything we knew to do to fight for him, he left. You know, one dark September night, we went for our last cake pop and hot chocolate with him. And then we dropped him off at a hotel with his relatives from out of town, and that was it. The, the family that we had been building just vanished before our eyes. And I still so vividly remember the driving away on that night, just tears welling up in our eyes. And those next few weeks that would follow, and even months to follow, you know, we cried more tears than I ever remember crying the rest of my life combined. The first night especially, Jorley and I, we, we both, we wailed. We cried for hours and hours, barely slept. There was nothing that I wouldn't have done to bring him back, to be his dad again, to hear his laugh. You know, the amount of, of sorrow that we felt in that moment felt insurmountable. We just loved him so deeply. In a lot of ways, and I recognize this sounds dramatic, but it felt like our kid had died. These, these types of moments in life have often been referred to as Gethsemane moments. Moments filled with, with anguish, with despair, these really difficult circumstances where you reach the end of yourself and you actually don't know how it is that you're going to even carry on past this moment. Have you ever had a moment like that? A time in your life that just seems so incredibly hopeless, where everything felt lost. I've come to realize that one of the biggest questions that we have to wrestle with in the Christian life, that we have to grapple with, is how will we handle pain and disappointment well? Especially as we grow older, but, but also many people are experiencing painful situations really early on in life. And regardless of when, for all of us at some point and in some capacity, pain and suffering will come knocking at our door. No one's immune. And the question is this, how will we handle life when it doesn't go the way we think it should or imagined that it would? 
when it's not all up and to the right or Instagrammable by any sense of the word? How will we deal with our Gethsemane moments? In Matthew chapter 26, the text that was just read for us a moment ago by Melanie, we we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this word Gethsemane, it literally translates to olive press. Gethsemane was this beautiful garden just outside the walls of Jerusalem where, where olives would grow on olive trees and then they'd be harvested. They'd be turned to olive oil. I had an opportunity to go to Israel not too long ago with Pastor Mark and a few of the other pastors from our team. And I had the opportunity to go to that exact place, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was incredible. It's filled with dozens and dozens of olive trees. And in the ancient times, right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was an olive press. The olives would be picked from the trees and then they'd be crushed. They'd be squeezed. The olives would undergo this intense pressure And through the process, they would produce this this incredible olive oil, this beautiful fragrance. And in a lot of ways, right there in the setting itself, the Garden of Gethsemane, the setting of Matthew 26, it serves as a symbolism for what Jesus was about to do as he would go to the cross. Like olives in the olive press, he would undergo this intense pressure. He'd be crushed and release his oil, so to speak, his life for us, for you, and for me, and for the world And so here's what I want to do together today as we look at this text. I want to behold Jesus, to stand in awe of this Jesus in the garden in Gethsemane. And as we do, as we look to Jesus, I want to talk about what we can learn about how we can go through our Gethsemane moments. Because there's so much there that we can glean from. Looking to Jesus as our archetype for how to navigate dark and tumultuous times. Jesus as as our model, our focus. So that's where we're going. Jesus' response in Gethsemane. But as I was studying over this last week, I realized that Jesus' response in Gethsemane isn't actually the only response that we see in our text. There's all these surrounding characters that respond in this myriad of different ways, very natural human ways. Psychologists have popularized a phrase, maybe you've heard it before, a phrase that, for how people commonly respond to hardship and hard times. They call, the, they call it fight or flight. Have you heard of this before? Fight or flight. And we we see both of these responses in this story, in the text. Both fight and flight show up. For example, how does Peter respond? Peter, who's one of Jesus' disciples, his closest friends. Just a few verses later in this chapter, in chapter 26, as Judas the betrayer shows up alongside this angry mob that's coming towards Jesus with bats and with clubs. Peter's response is to fight. He cuts off the ear of one of the guys who's in the crowd. His instinct is to flight. And while most of us don't carry around swords, and I would imagine you probably wouldn't cut off an ear or a small limb in the fit of rage, I would imagine there's a group of people here today that can absolutely identify with Peter's fight response in the midst of chaos. When hard stuff comes at you, you just double down and you face the challenge head on, like, come at me, bro. Maybe you don't even think about it first. You just like Peter, you whip out your sword and and figuratively chop. (laughs) I wonder, I was thinking about this this story with Peter and how he responds. I wonder if Jesus' teaching on murder and nonviolence had been working in his heart at least enough that he wasn't going to go for the jugular, (laughs) but he was willing to go for the ear. So there's this instinct to fight. Another response we see in the text is this instinct to flight. You know, as Jesus was bound and arrested and taken, to the, taken from the garden, verse 56 of our text says this, all the disciples deserted him and fled. All his friends left. And I think that's such an, a common response to Gethsemane moments, doing whatever we can to escape the pain, escape the hard stuff that's going on. 
escapism. It's this instinct to try to get away from whatever it is that hurts or from the negative emotions that are welling up inside. And so in order to do that, many people, they self-medicate with substances or with mindless scrolling or with binge watching on Netflix or with relationships or sexual encounters or with food or whatever it is. Something to numb the pain or at least to forget about it for a little bit, what's going on beneath the surface, escapism or flight instincts. But how does Jesus respond How does Jesus respond in Gethsemane? Well, first, he allows himself to feel. He he actually takes stock of his emotions and what he's experiencing in, in his body. Right off the top, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Another Bible translation says, I feel so bad I could die. Jesus allows himself to feel. A few verses later, it says, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Notice the level of of drama here, the agony as he falls to the ground and cries out to the Father. I want you to catch this, that Jesus, our truest model of humanity, our rabbi, our teacher, the great archetype of the human life, he wasn't happy all the time. There were times where he felt intense emotions of sadness and sorrow, and in this moment, he was troubled. I think it's even safe to conclude that maybe Jesus experienced depression in the midst of Gethsemane. He said, I feel so bad I could die. And here's what I so appreciate about this text. That it proves that to experience sadness or sorrow or depression, to feel anxiety is not to sin. It's actually just part and parcel with the human condition. But I think most of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, aren't actually that good at allowing ourselves to feel We busy ourselves, we busy our brains with more and more stuff so that we don't have to feel. And in many cases, Christian culture has only perpetuated this problem, where in a lot of churches, there's this expectation that you're happy-go-lucky all the time. You show up at church with your extroverted self on, and there's this cultural expectation that you're happy and you have a smile on because Jesus rose from the grave and heaven's your home, so put a smile on your face. And so people oftentimes stuff down what they're feeling and experiencing because it doesn't align with the vision of the Christian life that's being Presented one of joy only and prosperity and only success. And when you're surrounded by people who never seem to be struggling with anything or always have their Sunday best on, their families have this image of perfection, at least for the 90 minutes or so that we're together on a Sunday morning, you can easily start to believe that there's something wrong with you if you're dealing with any sort of real struggles or hardship. If you're, if you're not always as happy as the Christians around you seem to be, sometimes you are. But sometimes life is just really hard. And we come to this text and we see that Jesus is overcome with grief, experiencing these very real emotions. Yet I think this text gives us permission to not always be okay. And maybe the solution to Gethsemane is not to pretend that everything's okay when it's not, but actually to allow ourselves to feel, to take stock of of how a situation or a conversation has affected us to actually unpack the dynamics that were at play in your family of origin and that have shaped who you've become, both good and bad, to actually identify what's going on beneath the surface. And over time, often with the help of a therapist or a friend who's amazing at listening, allowing Jesus to, 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 he, to heal, to bring healing to our lives. But it actually starts with honesty. Like, how am I really doing? What emotions am I feeling? It's okay to not be okay. And in the midst of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus allows himself to feel. 
And then secondly, he invites his close friends to be with him. Look at verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You know, as Jesus encounters Gethsemane, or likely his hardest day to date, like at that point in his life, he surrounded himself with community. He surrounded himself with friends. Here's Jesus who's overwhelmed with sorrow, deeply troubled, and he says to his closest friends, I need you with me. I need you to help me to shoulder this emotional load. That's actually not how most of us view Jesus, is it? And and I think there's a bit of a side note here. For years, Bible scholars have actually used this exact text to point to the authenticity of scripture in the Christian faith. Because if you were trying to fabricate this story, if you were trying to fabricate Jesus as the Messiah, you would never put this stuff into the text. You would never allow Jesus in Gethsemane to make it into your biography because you want to present him as powerful and strong, not weak and needy. You know, if, if Jesus' disciples were just making this stuff, you'd omit this story because as God, you'd want it to appear strong, not weak and in need of friends to make it through the day. And yet here we find this beauty of Jesus, one who's fully God, but also fully man, fully human. One who, like us, needs deep friendships around him in order to encounter Gethsemane. Last week, I was chatting with a friend who, uh, someone in our church who's going through a really incredibly hard time, a failed relationship and depression, some spiritually oppressive stuff. And as I was talking, I said, who have you been walking through this stuff with? Like, who have you been sharing this with? And her response was, was no one. And this is a girl who's always around people, who has lots of people and friends around her. And I was like, what, why? Like, why haven't you been sharing this with, with your people, with your community, with your friends? And she said, I don't know, I I guess I just didn't want to bum them out. And I was so sad by that response. Because we need each other. You're not meant to go through life alone. The burden is too heavy. Even Jesus brought his friends with him into the garden, into Gethsemane with him. But we like to be the strong ones. Or at least to be perceived as the strong ones. And so most of us are actually quite private with the real stuff going on in our lives. Maybe because of our pride and trying to uphold this, this vision or this, this facade of strength. Or maybe out of a desire not to bother anyone. Maybe a combination of the two. But can I just say that we as the church, we are here to bear each other's burdens. To put an arm around a person who's down. Or if someone can't, can't continue a lap of the race, we lift them up. We say, you can do this. You can make it. And if we're struggling, we pick the person up. We were not made to do life alone. We were made to do life together. And that can only happen if we get past the facade of good. I'm good. And actually allow each other in on how life's actually going. Hey, maybe I need to say, you do not need to be open and transparent with everyone. That's probably actually a really bad idea. (laughs) But we all do need a Peter, James, and John, so to speak. People who are in the nitty gritty of life with us who we invite into the real stuff and who can shoulder the emotional load. Jesus brings his friends with him. And how do they do? How do Jesus' friends do at being his moral support and his prayer partners? They fall asleep. (laughs) Three times Jesus finds them asleep instead of praying. Look at verse 40. It says, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. When I was in high school, I, uh, I had this awesome youth pastor. His name was Shane, Pastor Shane. 
And one of the things I so appreciated about the way that he led our youth ministry is he really cultivated this passion for prayer and the presence of God and for worship. And, and so as a result, one of the things that he started pretty early on when he came to our church was this Tuesday night prayer gathering for youth and young adults in our church. It was a pretty free-flowing night. There'd be some worship and times of personal and corporate prayer throughout the evening. And as a grade eight kid, I went, for, I went to this prayer gathering on Tuesday nights for a couple of reasons. First, I really did love God and I was intrigued by the hunger that I saw in the older students who were passionately praying to God for revival, for him to save our friends in high school and, and, and to do great things in our city. I was really inspired by that and, and I wanted to see, it stirred me. But the other reason that I went to prayer on Tuesday nights is because after that 90 minutes of prayer and worship time, everyone would go to this local family restaurant in town called Patty O'Neill's because Patty O'Neill's on Tuesday night had 29 cent wings. <laughs> Which meant that at that price, I could afford like 25 to 30 honey garlic wings. And so I'd often do that. I'd get the large amount of wings and a Diet Coke because everyone knows that if you drink Diet Coke, it cancels out all the calories and the honey garlic sauce. <laughs> But, but back to that prayer gathering, almost every week as we, as we moved through the night into a time of personal prayer, I would lie face down on these green stackable, comfortable chairs in the sanctuary, and I would be praying, and every single week I would fall asleep, like snoring, drooling, and someone would nudge me around 9 p.m. like, dude, we're going for wings, are you coming or not? And I would jump up and I'd wipe the drool off my mouth and I would get into someone's car and go to patio Neal's. Every Tuesday night I fell asleep. And so I can totally relate to Jesus' disciples in this text. But here's what I love. That Jesus wants them with him, even though they continue to fail and disappoint him. That he's not expecting perfection from them. He's not expecting them to be God. He wants them with him. He loves them, even though they continue to drift off task and fall asleep on the job. Imperfect as they were failed and flawed and sleepy as they were. Jesus still wanted them to be with him. And he wants you to be with him. He wants us to be with him. Though we continue to fail, short, fall short, he calls us friends. He wants us to be with him. The last observation that I want to look at, Jesus in Gethsemane. I want to look at Jesus' prayer that he approaches the Father honestly and unfiltered. In Gethsemane, we find this man of sorrows, one who's acquainted with grief, who's full of emotion and undone, and who brings it all before the Father in prayer. No filter, no cleaned up, sanitized version of himself. He brings all of his emotions before God. I'm, over, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now I wonder, what does your prayer life look like? Do you have that kind of raw honesty with God? You know, I think that a lot of Christians find prayer boring because they, they come to prayer with the same level of transparency that we come to an acquaintance or a stranger where, where, you, where you're asked how you're doing and the answer is always good. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden who hid themselves from God with the fig leaves. So often we hide what's really going on from God. So often we hide what's really going on from, from our community. Sometimes even from ourselves. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus coming to the Father with all of his emotion and honesty. I'm sad. I'm troubled. It's too much to bear. I feel so bad I could die. Here's something I think we often forget. That God knows what we're feeling, whether or not we tell him. By not being honest with God about our anger or frustration or confusion, we're not actually hiding it from him. He knows our every thought we're just robbing ourselves from a relationship with him along the way. 
deep relationship with the loving father who wants to be with us in the midst of our sorrow. Like, do you know that it's okay to, to, to bring your emotion to God, even to be angry, to yell at God, to express frustration and confusion to him? Isn't that what we see happening throughout the Psalms? Like over and over again in the Psalms, we, we, we see them say something to the effect of my, and my enemies are surrounding me. My life like sucks, really sucks. I, I, I thought you were on my side, God. What is going on? Have you forgotten your promises to me? They usually end with submission, but they start with this raw, unfiltered emotion. And guess what? God can take it. He wants to hear it. He wants you just as you are, not the, not the, the, the filtered, sanitized version of yourself. It's okay to, to yell into a pillow. It's okay to go into a field and shout and, 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 be, and cry and, and be overcome with emotion. Jesus prays with emotion. He brings all of his feelings before the Father. He also brings his desires. Look at verse 39. My Father, he says, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. This phrase, this cup, was a first century idiom for a person's allotment of pain and suffering in life. You know, in modern words, maybe it's like saying this hand that you've been dealt or this burden that you bear. And so Jesus is saying about the cross, can we do this another way? Can you take this hand that I've been dealt, this cup, take it away? It feels too heavy to bear. This is a moment where we actually see Jesus in this text experiencing unanswered prayer where he asks the father to take this cup from him. He brings his, des- his desire and the betrayer still comes. Did you catch that? That in Gethsemane, Jesus experiences unanswered prayer. And so that means that every time you cry out to God and you ask for something, for healing, for restoration in a relationship, for something that you want, something that you need, and it doesn't happen, Jesus knows what that feels like. He brought his desire to the Father in prayer, not, 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 not what he thought he should desire, but what he actually felt in that moment. And through prayer, you see his deepest desires actually come to the surface. I, I started this talk by, by sharing about Jaron, about how he left our home, and after a few years of being with us and the pain that that caused as a result. But part of the pain that we experienced was because we had prayed and we had prayed and we had cried out to God and, and we did everything in our power to keep Jaron with us because we felt like that was what God was asking us to do. Our desire was for Jaron to stay and we, and we brought that before the Lord. We asked in prayer, but at the end of the day, Jaron still left. I remember this one distinct moment about a, about a, a week before he left. After days of trying to figure out what we were going to do to try to make this work, to make him stay, we, we, we knew what was going to happen. We knew he was going to leave, and, and we had no choice but to just submit our little boy to God. And I realized in that moment that, that the desire of my heart in that moment was, yes, for him to stay. But really, it was, was, it was my deepest desire. The desire beneath the desire was that he would be loved, and that he'd be cared for, and that he'd be safe, and that he'd grow up to know Jesus. And I had to ask myself, do I actually believe that, that God loves Jared more than I do? That I can entrust him into the Lord's hands? And so we did. We entrusted our little boy into the sovereign hands of God, even though we didn't understand in that moment. And it didn't feel like we thought it was going to feel, and it wasn't easy. It was actually incredibly hard, but we watched God be faithful, even in the midst of great sorrow and confusion. And that's what we see Jesus do in the garden. He submits to the will of the Father. 
Look specifically at the second half of verse 39. My father, if it's possible, maybe this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's this deep trust. In other words, I trust that that your will is ultimately what's good and right and beautiful. I trust that you are sovereign and in control and that you're working in the midst of this brokenness. Like a master artist who's making beauty from ashes. Three times Jesus actually, he, he repeats this prayer in the garden, this prayer of surrender. Your will be done. Not as I will, but your will be done. And this is such an important part of prayer. Just surrendering our control. Trusting God to be God. This kind of prayer changes us. Changes our whole perspective. In a lot of ways, I think it takes the weight and the pressure off our shoulders. You know, we contend and we pray and we ask and we bring our requests and then we trust God to be God. And we acknowledge that we are not. And because of his track record, because he's faithful time and time again, all throughout the ages, he's been faithful. We can trust him. That his ways are higher than our ways. That his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And sometimes what we ask for, what we think that we need in a given moment, isn't actually what's best for us. He always has our best intentions at heart. Tim Keller said it like this. God always answers our prayer. He either gives us what we ask for, or he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows. Isn't that good? He always answers our prayer. He either gives us what we ask for, he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows. We can trust him in the midst of Gethsemane. Okay, so as we close, let me just say this. In the story of Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, we see this beautiful template of G- from Jesus on how to endure hardship, how to live well through hard times as we take stock of our emotions and actually allow ourselves to feel, as we surround ourselves with, with community, with friends, as we surrender to God in prayer. And that's beautiful, and that's true, and that's helpful and right. But you know, our greatest hope in the midst of suffering isn't actually Jesus in Gethsemane at all. It's actually what he would do next that makes all the difference. It's what Gethsemane points to. See, in the hours to come, Jesus would taste the cup of suffering. He'd be turned over to Herod, then to Pontius Pilate, and he would be beaten and bruised and humiliated and scorned. He'd be hung up on a Roman cross to to die in our place. He'd take the punishment upon himself that was due to us because of our sin. Oh, friends, let us behold. Let's stand in awe of this man of sorrows who weeps in the garden, but he doesn't stop there. But for the joy that was set before him endures the cross. His life for ours. You want to know the greatest hope that we have in the midst of Gethsemane, in the midst of hard times? the greatest hope we have in the midst of Gethsemane is that even the worst thing that happens to us in life will never be the last thing. That because of what Jesus did on the cross, death and all its friends have been defeated. See, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus, that God loves us so much that he would save us that he live a perfect life, that he die in our place and rise to new life, ushering in the kingdom of God and offering life to anyone who, who believes. We have hope because of Jesus, because Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We have hope because even the, the, these momentary afflictions, as real as they are, as painful as they can be, will not last forever. That even death is not the end. 
even the worst thing that happens to you in life is not the last thing, but to those who put their hope in Jesus, he offers life. Amen? In, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 22, at the very end of the Bible, we, read this be- we see this beautiful picture of the age to come. It's actually described as a garden. But unlike the garden of Gethsemane, this garden, in this garden, there's no more pain and there's no more sorrow. Every tear's been wiped away. All things are made new. That's the picture of heaven that we see in scripture. A garden or a garden-like city as it's described where we're forever in the presence of Jesus and where we experience his perfect peace. So as we move into response together today, let's, let's take a moment to behold, to reflect, to stand in awe of our Savior who loved us enough not to leave us in our mess, but who came to save us. And so in the quietness of this moment, in just a moment, John and Lindsay are going to lead us in a time of response and share a song with us that so beautifully articulates this exact scene. The things that Jesus was feeling in this moment as he goes to the cross. So as they lead us, as we sit in that moment, I just want to ask that you would stay seated and that you would reflect, that you'd respond. Maybe for some, you want to close your eyes and just listen to the words. But reflect on this, this, this Jesus who weeps in the garden and who goes to the cross for us. Before they sing, I wonder if there might be some people in the room uh, who don't know this Jesus that I've been talking about, that we were singing about earlier, and uh, you don't have this hope in the midst of hard times and struggles. You know, scripture tells us that coming to Jesus and embracing the hope that he has on offer is as simple as believing in our heart that Jesus is Lord confessing with our mouth that he's Lord, that God raised him from the dead and we're saved. We can experience the same hope in the midst of our Gethsemane moments. So if that's you, my prayer for you today is that you would embrace it, that you reach out and embrace this Jesus, this hope that he has. After the service, there'll be people here in front that would love to pray with you, kind of introduce you to Jesus in this journey of life of following him. So in this moment, why don't you sit reflect and respond. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.